1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Hear your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. I feel scared in case I fall <laughs> off a chair. If they hadn't done what I told them not to do, they'd still be alive. You're acting like a first-year thief. I'm acting like a professional. Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and Michael Madsen. They're the Reservoir Dogs. Hey, Joe, want me to shoot this guy? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and this time out, I am joined by friend of the show, but not having appeared yet, Derek William Crabb. Derek, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me, Paul. This is awesome. Uh, it's my pleasure. This is this is overdue. Uh, as we were just saying before we started recording the episode, I have a list of movies to cover, and Derek is actually quite prominent on that list, uh, with quite a few of them that that I plan to cover with him. Uh, but this is just the so this I guess is the first of many. Make a good impression on the audience, and uh, it will be good. But no, no pressure. No this, pressure whatsoever. No, 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 not at all. I, I, you'll be back even if they hate you. Nice. Uh, <laughs> but Get this, used to it. I'm coming <laughs> back. <laughs> this week around, we are covering Reservoir Dogs, which is one of the movies that you 
listed for me that you would like to cover. Uh, and uh, we'll start off with that. Why did you why did you pick this movie? I I guess this is to me like sort of in my blood or whatever. I I guess I could go into like how I first discovered it, but I mean I. I don't know. I feel like I sort of have to explain to the listeners who, who probably don't know me. I mean, I, I guess, you know, part of the reason why I'm in the circle is because, you know, I have my own podcast and I do some YouTube videos and everything like that. And that's how I've pretty much come to know all the people on the various networks and everything. But when I was growing up, I mean, my my dream, my career goal or whatever was to be an actor. And I, you know, I moved to Los Angeles like in 1995. I went to school out there. You know, I was doing theater even before then. And I was, you know, trying to break in and and do acting wherever I could. And I guess like the simple answer to this is I, I kind of always feel like Reservoir Dogs is like an actor's film. I mean, I mean, they, they, just gravitated towards this script and the script itself is really very theatrical like just to begin with and so that's why you had all these you know famous actors like Harvey Keitel like kind of championing the script and becoming a producer on it and everything like that and so I guess that's kind of I mean part of the reason why it spoke to me I mean I I guess you know just for me it's like the kind of nerddom I have for this film and and like i really really got into tarantino around the same time was i mean i probably saw pulp fiction in the theater first and i know my dad tried to show me reservoir dogs before pulp fiction came out like when it was on vhs and kind of what i remember and this is why i had to bring up the acting story was because I was in high school at the time. It was like 1993, I think, probably when this came out on VHS. And then, you know, so I'm not saying I was like in the theaters when this came out or whatever, because I clearly didn't see it in the theaters or anything. Not that many people did. (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, it's not like it had a super wide release or anything like that. And so I remember him calling me in to see the Freddie Neuendijk scene, like basically the commode story. And the reason, there, there were two reasons why he called me in for that was because one, because there was a Silver Surfer poster in the background. Right. And then two, because that scene reminded him of me. Like, those are the kind of things that like, and, and when, when I say it's like an actor's movie, like even though it's supposed to be an undercover cop remembering a story to tell to you know, this group of criminals so that it legitimizes him. Like, that sequence is just, it's its like a slice of life of anyone who's ever tried to get into acting. Anyone who's ever tried to memorize a monologue for an audition. Anyone who's ever worked on a play and is sitting there alone in their room trying to memorize lines. Like, that sequence is, like... It's so real, like to to anyone who's ever gone through that, and and that was one of those things where you know I guess that's why my dad probably called me in the room because it reminded me of or it reminded him of me doing that kind of stuff. He would see me talk to myself like they would always come in the room and go, Is "Something wrong? Like what's going on? Like are you okay?" It's like, "Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just I'm doing a monologue. Like I'm I'm." 
preparing, I'm practicing, I'm, you know, yelling and screaming at somebody, but it's fine because it's part of the scene. Like, there's nothing wrong. It's one of the things that I, que- you know, one of the very few things, honestly, that I questioned a little bit about the movie is that the, the reality of that scene. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you've given it a different light for me than what I had thought about in the past, because thinking about it as an actor practicing a role makes sense. Thinking about it as an undercover cop it doesn't, yeah, that, only that, because you wouldn't practice every word of it that way. You need to, if you want it to sound natural as an undercover cop, you have to kind of do it as the situation allows. So what you need to memorize is all the facts, but not necessarily word for word how to say it. At well, least that's that, the way that, I see it. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. Like, you're saying you have a basic general outline, but I think I think what he's getting at is if you don't want to get caught in a lie, if you don't want to get busted, you ha- that's why his his mentor is like, you got to be specific as hell because if somebody catches you in the middle of something, if you keep changing it every time you do it, you're going to get caught. Like, so, I and, and, and the challenge of being an actor is you do have to make something sound naturalistic as hell but yet it's not you're you're reading something essentially you're 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 reading the printed word but you're making it your own so as long as you're able to i don't know convey that to somebody and and not sound phony or fake i mean that's always your goal right but i i see what you're saying about is that realistic for a you know an undercover cop. Well, I mean, I think a lot of things in this, you know, quote unquote sting movie are not necessarily realistic for, you know, LAPD procedure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, it's yeah, like, true. it's like a lot of, a lot of stuff that goes down in this movie. You kind of scratch your head and be like, all right, is that legal? Like, is, would somebody let them do this? Like how, how long could they let this drag out for before somebody would bust down the door? You know, like it, would that really happen? Would they really let this go this long just to, just to bust this one guy, you know. So it's like there's there's a lot of things like that where if you if you probably stop and think about it too much, then then you know things would the, you know the sweater would unravel and you'd have a bunch of string on the floor. But I think I guess just in terms of I don't know, like I guess this slice of life actor appreciation thing. Like for me, that that sequence I guess means a lot and 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 kind of is one of those things that probably that's probably the first scene of this film I ever saw and I, mm-hmm. and I think like there's there, there's those interesting aspects because it's like that that's why they did that sequence in the bathroom and he's in the bathroom but he's giving the lines as they're shooting the sequence and it's like that that to me is like you know when people get into their whole like you know method kind of scene and they're trying to like recreate things so it's like oh well he's going to be specific as hell because he knows exactly what german shepherd was there and exactly what the cops looked like and exactly how the you know the soap smelled just all those things that he's talking about because he's in this specific bathroom and everything sure but I, i picture it more uh i think you know in recent years so you know since this movie's made and this movie is a lot older than i than than i than i give it credit for in my mind because I guess maybe it's because I'm so old and I'm compressing years. But, uh, you know, released in, in January of 1992. So, you know, that makes it 26 years old already. You know, that's, 20, yeah, 26 years old. That's that's a lot. <laughs> you, yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I was already out of out of school and, and working in a job when this came out. And uh, one, of, one of the guys I worked with said to me, oh, you, you need to see this movie. I just rented it and watched it with my wife, and it was great, and I know you're going to love it. So that that ended up being how I got to see it uh, on, on someone's recommendation. So I, I went out of my way to watch it and 
immediately just thought this was awesome. But talking about that scene again, uh, I picture from an acting perspective more of what you'd see in recent days where like a show, at least the way they present it to us, like Curb Your Enthusiasm, that there isn't an actual script that there's certain lines that are scripted that they, you know, they know are the comedy beats, but that a lot of it is, you know, improvisation. You know, this is the circumstance. This is who you are. This is the situation that comes up between you. Go. Like, you know what I mean? There isn't the actual words already written out for them in, in those scenes. Well, or at least that's the way I understand it to be, at I mean, least in some if, of them. I, I think if that's your impression, most of the actors and, and, and Tarantino would probably just say thank you you know because because if it comes across that way to you then that means they've done their job oh no no i I gotta back it up for a little bit on you here i don't mean that's the way this movie seems i Mm. mean that's the way it seems like the undercover cop should have it oh oh, i see what what i'm saying because if you're saying like okay okay if i'm gonna plant you in with with you know bill and andy and dave to do is it yours I'm going to start giving you some background information, and I'm going to tell you this is who you know, Derek. This is who you are, and and this is your background. And let me start asking you some questions just to see if you can answer them with you know with the background I gave you. But I'm not giving you a script as to the story you're going to tell them. You know what I mean? Yeah, but but if I, if I have to legitimize myself on like listen to the prophets, and I don't know enough about Star Trek. Like that—that's that, the thing. Like, like it's like you—it's it, not like you can be like changing. It's it, if I start coming in and talking about like Mego Star Trek dolls, but then I switch my story up to like playmates, like Star Trek action figures. Mm-hmm. Like Doctor Bill's gonna be like, "Hey, wait, you're a faker." Like, wait a minute. Like, either you know about the Migos and you grew up with those, or you know about the playmates stuff, or maybe you know about both. But but he's at that point, he might be like, "I caught you in a." in a lie and that that you know makes you illegitimate in terms of your you know the, the this this story that that long beach mike you know crafted for freddie newendike to to get him in you know so. yeah and i'm probably going off on this point way too long but but it's know. just my thought process is i'm going to educate you as to the mego dolls and i'm going to keep asking you questions about them until you can answer any question i ask you so now i know you're totally knowledgeable about it and you could talk about them and then i'm setting you free i'm not going to write mm-hmm. an article about the Mego dolls and hand it to you and tell you memorize this article. Mem- mem- memorize this one thing about this one time you lost a Gorn action figure down the sewer or whatever, and how it yeah. like crushed your crushed your life. Because well, I might tell start- you that story. I might say, you know what, the defining moment in your Mego Star Trek life is when you lost this Gorn figure. But I'm not going to tell you. I'm ri- I'm not going to write out the story for you and tell you memorize it and right right and and just recite it back to me. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna tell you this is what happened. Now tell me the story. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It just seems more realistic to well, me that but way. Well, I, I think I think part of that though is 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 he gives him the speech, but he says he says memorize it, but but I think there's that aspect of it too where he says like make it your own, like because it's not going to be. I I guess my thinking would be if you if you gave the the commode story to five different undercover cops. The essential beats of it would be the same. They walk into a bathroom and they nearly get caught with their stash. But is it going to be marijuana every time? Is it going to be something? You know what I mean? Like it's going to be it's going to be something different in a different city with different dogs with 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 different arrangements. 
like, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe in one arrangement, you know, in this one, Freddie Newendike's, you know, got his girlfriend, and there's that arrangement where he gets free weed. Well, maybe in the other arrangement, you know, the guy's got a boyfriend, and, and he gives him free weed, or, or he gives him, like, free blow, or, you know, wh- whatever things change, you know, who knows? Like, maybe he walks in, and it's like uh, Ezekiel in The Walking Dead, and there's a bunch of, you know lions and tigers there in the bathroom <laughs> instead of dogs or some shit you know like for, for a minute like you sounded to me like you were inspired by lawrence tierney when he said there's a different guy on a different job <laughs> different name there's a different guy named mr <laughs> mr yellow so that the, the story on this uh is that tarantino wrote the script and was you know showing it around he wanted to produce it but he was pretty much settled in on producing it on very very low budget uh, and someone on his behalf, kind of a friend of a friend of a friend, passed the script over to Harvey Keitel, who wrote it, liked, read it, liked it, and championed it, and got him, you know, the meager budget that he did get. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which was, I'm not going to even play the guessing game on this one. It's listed on Wikipedia as 1.2 to 1.5 million dollars, which. You know, even by the standards of 1992, is a very low budget movie. But you know what? I, I'd be hard pressed to put together 1.2 to 1.5 million dollars to make a movie. So, you right, know, without right. without some well, pr- production help, you'd you'd be out of luck on that. Because I mean, originally, what they were thinking of was he had he had just sold his spec script for True Romance, and I think that was going to get him like I don't know, like 50 grand or something like that. Like they they were going to go like really gorilla low budget on right. it, and like you know, they were talking about how. You know, he was going to play Mr. Pink, and, you know, it was, it, it, they weren't thinking it was going to be this. You know, I, I imagine it would have been more along the budget of, say, like, Kevin Smith's Clerks than, than what it ended up being. If, exactly. If not for, you know, if, if not for the whole, like, there were, you know, actor classes and studio classes and all that stuff. And then, you know, because of, like you're saying, because because of, of I, I think it was like, I think it was Lawrence Bender was the producer, and he was in a class with some lady and the lady was was the wife of you know such and such person who knew harvey Keitel, and then that's how you know like that's how the the script landed mm-hmm. into his, his lap and then and then they go from there and then start you know doing everything it's weird though because i'm i'm, I'm thinking about stuff like uh, like since we're talking about the script and and one thing that i was trying to get to but that i i think i i forgot my point was is i i own like because because we would make these trips you know, because we were even when I was in high school, because because we were quote unquote actors. You know, and 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 we would we would go down to Samuel French, which is the you know like store where you could get plays. And so like you would either and and to go to Samuel French, like if if you were living here where I am now in the Bay Area, you would have to go down to San Francisco and take like you know a little field trip with all the you know drama kids and stuff like that, and go down to San French and and buy a bunch of plays. And when you were in L.A., you know you did basically the same thing, except for you would drive down to uh you know like hollywood boulevard or something like that and then go to sam french or sunset i think is where it was on and then you would get you know plays and all that kind of stuff and so of course when i would see like oh dude look at that there's it's got the script for true romance and reservoir dogs i still have that book and like it's sitting in front of me now so it's like that's Mm. i guess kind of the level of my nerddom with with some of the the tarantino stuff was like i would i you know and 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 there there are funny i mean i i should probably save some of this for if if we ever talk about pulp fiction but there's there's some funny stories i have about you know people trying to uh you know i guess uh imitate and or or uh you know reenact the uh, sequences from from tarantino films and stuff like that even you know before they were 
as widely regarded. I mean, it was it was kind of pretty recent, you know, when when people were trying to do this. So I think people, you know, at least in 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 uh, you know even even kids in in high school that were you know part of little acting communities picked up on on Tarantino as something where oh this is really you know meaty this is something i can dig my teeth into and it probably didn't hurt that like when you were you know in high school and you're like cool i get to say all these curse words and it's part <laughs> of c you know like so you like there's all kinds of you know to you like like win win type things about that i mean it's 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 kind of awesome that that this is essentially like tarantino's directorial debut but yet he he got to do it with you know all these great actors and and he had somebody like harvey keitel that was like dude i want to do this because this is going to be good and like that 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 it turned out you know as uh, polished i think as it did yeah great actors but with the exception of harvey keitel uh you know who has never been you know a big box office name uh, you, you know, famous, yes. In great, some great movies, yes. Great actor, yes. But the guy who you put on the uh, marquee to bring in audiences, not really. Uh, right. But he's the biggest name in this, at least when this was filmed, he was the biggest name. You know, since since then, Tim Roth's star has risen greatly. Michael Madsen's star has risen greatly. Steve Buscemi's star has risen greatly. But, uh, you know, Chris Penn, you know, sadly... Uh, you know, he he may have been one of the best actors of the bunch, but sadly, you know, his life didn't go on that long. Uh, you know, he he was a, his his big claim to fame at the point this was made is that he was Sean Penn's brother. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, nobody else. I mean, Lawrence Tierney has a uh, you know a filmography that's a spe- you know very very long, but he isn't he wasn't at the time a, you know an incredibly sought after actor and no, wasn't even no. an incredibly you know recognizable actor. Uh, we just covered an episode on uh, Listen to the Prophets that's going to air in March. But uh, in that episode, Lawrence Tierney played a, played a role, which is just amusing. That yeah. Quoting these so close in time to each other. But, uh, you know, he, he is a strange character in and of himself. Uh, and one of my favorite things is in this movie when they compare him to The Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Tim Roth. It's like, thing, mother looks like the thing yeah yeah it's it's funny because you, you i think i think that was another thing too was like you you sort of realize oh people can do that i mean i suppose i could poke holes in you know some of tim roth's american accent now you know and everything but like there, there were things to, to me that were always impressive about that where you kind of see guys like tim roth or christian bale and then they you know they break into you know oh hey hey what's going on you know and you're just like wait they don't you know, it's like you were kind of fooled when you first, you know, you're like, oh, I thought, I thought they're, you know, he's like, hey, I'm convinced, give me my dollar back, you know, and you're like, oh, you expect him to talk like that, and then, you know, he actually has like, you know, an accent, you know, and you're just kind of like, oh, well, I, I had no idea, you know, you could do that, you could, you know, change, you know, your demeanor or your voice and, 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 and keep it up for so long that you could, you know, effectively fool somebody, and, and I was always kind of, uh, I guess, taken by that, you know, like, I always thought that mm-hmm. was really cool. Yeah, the ones who always surprise me on that is it seems like ninety percent of the cast of The Walking Dead are English. Right, right. And then there you, you, you know when so. when you you watch the episodes and everybody just sounds Americanized, and then you watch The Talking Dead afterwards, and they come walking right, out right, speaking right, with their right, regular right. voice. It's like, oh wow, yeah, listen to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I I think I think Tim Roth did a good job of doing the American accent in this movie, but I think he may have struggled with it a bit, which is why I think they may have just said, you know what, Pulp Fiction, just talk with your regular accents. Right, 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 yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I I didn't think there was any, you know, in Pulp Fiction at least, there wasn't any need for him to have the accent. 
<laughs> the Americanized accent. In this one, it, it would have he would have stood out as something strange as a undercover cop with an English accent. Right. You know, right. It, it, it just would, something wouldn't have wouldn't have fallen right there. Uh, Michael Madsen. I don't know what he did before this. I, I don't know if his star rose particularly. It definitely rose because of this movie, but I don't know if he. Well, I mean, was, I mean, if he, he was already on the rise. He he frequently thanks Tarantino. I mean, like for this role, kind of. I mean, there's probably things he's done before this. I mean, I suppose we could look it up, but like, I I think this film, like you said, other than Harvey Keitel, I mean, you know, you could point to things like like I think Tim Roth was in you know Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and things like that that were mm-hmm. you know kind of like uh, probably for most people off the the beaten path, but. You know, I I don't know that necessarily anybody was, you know, like like you were saying, like that that they were like part of like superstardom or anything like that before they were they were in this film. I mean, the, the, and what's interesting about this, I think, is that this is this is kind of more of like a. It's weird. I was I was trying to think about this in terms of of not only the Jaws rating scale, but like the Jaws films themselves. Because I'm like, you know, this like you said, this was not widely theatrically released. I mean, for for all intents and purposes, it played at Sundance, and then and then it probably had like good runs in L.A. and New York, right? And then and then uh, according to most of the documentaries that I've been watching about it, it sounds like it got a lot of play in london and and like and then from there like it it really made a a a lot more money overseas in the uk theatrically than it ever did in the u.s and and i kind of feel like and and maybe this is just my own perspective but i I mean i kind of feel like this is more of a cult classic film where like it to, to me it seems like I knew of it before Pulp Fiction came out, but mm-hmm. to me, I have to be honest, it's like I I watched and fell in love with True Romance and Pulp Fiction long before I saw Reservoir Dogs. And then, and then because of that, and because I remembered my dad showing me that scene, then I went, oh wait, you mean the guy who wrote the script for True Romance and the guy who did Pulp Fiction is the same guy who did this, you know, Reservoir Dogs that my dad was trying to show me? Like, I, then I went back and watched that, and then it just became one of those movies where, you know, I don't know, maybe it was just a college circuit thing or a movie thing or whatever, but you know. It, it was funny. I, I went to college to Loyola Marymount, and I was sitting there, and not because I was ashamed or embarrassed by it or anything, but it was like one of those things where it's like, oh man, I can't be collecting comics right now because I was like, where am I going to put them? Like, I, I didn't know what I was going to do with them because it's like I didn't have any, you know, uh, I, I didn't have any, you know, short boxes or long boxes or, you know, bags and boards or any of that stuff. So so I was like sitting there trying to like rationalize and I'm like, look, I'm, I'm going to have to hold off on this and I'll get some stuff maybe when I go home for Christmas or whatever. But somehow, like, I funnel that into VHS tapes, like since I didn't buy comics for like that first three months or whatever when I was out there, it's like I noticed like everybody in in the dorm had one of those little, you know, combo like TVs with a VHS like in the yeah. bottom of them. Yeah, I had one and of you those. would you, you 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 would stick it on the top of your, you know, your closet or, or something like that and, and, and everybody in the room, that's how we would watch movies and stuff. And and I remember at the time like like this and Pulp Fiction and, and I think like a certain number of other movies were those things where it's like you became educated on film because of 
I, you would buy these VHS tapes, and then I was thinking to myself, well, I'll buy these tapes because I know I watch these movies more than once. So to me, my rationalization was, well, if I rent this movie like 12 times, like I might as well buy it for like 20 bucks or something, you know? And so mm -hmm. I ended up getting like, a, you know, I don't know, like a tub of VHS tapes. And in that VHS tub of tapes, you know, for sure was you know, True Romance and Pulp Fiction and, and Reservoir Dogs, because I, I would watch those films, like, over and over and over again. And then the, the other thing that I, I thought was kind of funny about it was, like, I, I guess you would, you would see that, like, the Pulp Fiction that you would buy was Pan and Scan, and you would kind of go, oh, like, this isn't how it was in the theater. So, like, it was, like, I guess I was I was going to college and then meeting people that were film students because I wanted to get into acting and you know sometimes they wanted people to be in their films and everything so it's like I was sort of getting you know a little mini education like okay there's a difference between widescreen and pan and scan like you're gonna you're gonna lose some of your image and stuff like that and that was something that like you know I I sort of understood oh this is why like I don't know Roger Ebert like reviews laser discs or whatever because he gets to see like the whole film and stuff like that and then and then I remember that got me into getting like you know things like where it was like the VHS uh, double deck tape of like a Nightmare on Elm Street came out and somebody bought that for me and it was it was widescreen you know or or right, like when right. when you would get like the Star Wars films and everything and instead of getting the the you know it was like the THX remastered you know three pack that was in a little block no 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 you you had to get the the super big one that was in widescreen where it was like flat and they had the three tapes in a little slipcase or whatever it was you know so it's like those those kind of things are, are kind of the memories this this kind of brings back to me you know that that kind of don't have a whole lot to do with the film per se but i i think you know sort of helped with my my film education i guess yeah i, I remember that you know that back in the in those days uh i you know i, I think anybody who's into film would have a certain inclination to want to see the widescreen versions rather than the pan and scan uh and you know for obvious reasons uh, but I, but anybody who was just somebody who just wants to watch a movie and isn't into film had reservations about it, especially back then when the big screen TVs were not so widespread. You know, you generally, right, right. you know, your your living room in the the mid '90s, your living room TV set. You know, you'd have a bigger one in your living room. It was probably 27 inches. Right. You know, and it was 27 inches with a four by three ratio. So. You know, you, you pan and scan it, you're, you're rather you're widescreening it, and you're going to have the letterbox, so you're cutting off some of your screen by doing that on top of it. Uh, so un unless you had an appreciation for film and one, you know, had that, that desire to see the entire image, you felt like you were being uh, cheated by, by not having your whole screen being used. You know, nowadays, with, you know, the big screen TVs that, are, that have the, uh, the widescreen ratio... You know, now now it's it's totally acceptable. In fact, now you show people television shows from the 1970s or 1980s that are shown in that four by three ratio, and they look at that and they have a problem. Yeah, that's what that's why I was thinking. Like, like even though uh, you know, I, I know we'll probably get to the the actual jaw scale of like what we think of this film, but that's that's kind of why, like, for some reason, like this film made me think a little bit of Jaws four because I'm like, I bet you most people that saw Jaws four saw it on home video. Like, I I, I I'm I'm guessing like there's not a whole lot of people 
that went out of their way to see Jaws 4 in the theater. And it's like, I think just by design, this film, like, you know, not not because it's Jaws 4, but just because of, you know, that it was an art house film, that it was only mm-hmm. playing in select cities and all this kind of stuff. And, and so not too many people did see this in its theatrical release. I mean, you know, unless it got... You know, that's what's kind of funny, too, is, I mean, I guess I have seen this in the theater, but not, not when it came out. You know, like, I, I remember there were lots of, like, you know, midnight screenings of, like, old films, and they would have film prints, and we'd see, like, these really crappy prints of, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark or Planet of the Apes, where, like, half the screen was, like... You know how they would show you, like, those restoration images of, like, when when Lucas was cleaning up Star Wars for the special edition, and they would show Mm -hmm. you, like, the deteriorated film, and then they'd do that wipe and show you it all cleaned up? Like, we would go and see like, deteriorated films at, like, midnight, because we loved, like, you know, we loved going to see, like, Raiders or Reservoir Dogs or, you know, whatever it was that they had a copy or a print of, you know, like, and and so we would go to Westwood, like, in the middle of the night and go, like, you know, like, man, and that Planet of the Apes print was, was... Ridiculous, but we still went and saw it, you know, because we were like, "This is awesome!" I and I and I, st- and I would movies. still go to the theater to see that. Yeah, the, yeah, to like, this day. But in in uh, this this domestically, according to Box Office Mojo, this movie opened on nineteen screens. <laughs> That's it, and in its yeah. widest release was at sixty one theaters. So this this you know th- this was never on target to be a big m- money maker, and yet it yeah. did it yeah. did gross domestically 2.8 million dollars so in light of its budget that's a fairly yeah. big success and then and uh, you know on on home video it, i don't i don't know how the word of mouth spread on this how it became a uh, you know a, a hot item on home video i just remember like i said one of the guys i worked with says he saw it and he was like you know you, you got to check this out and that that's what, what led me to it i think actually true romance probably added to the allure of allure of this you know once that became popular which was a somewhat bigger movie at the time yeah, yeah and you know when that as that became more popular people became aware that it was the same writer and it had some of the same sensibilities about it so but i you know it, it, it almost is amazing that this movie got the buzz that it did which led to pulp fiction being you know, having the budget that it had and, and having the release that it had and becoming the sensation that that did. And as you said, we'll probably discuss Pulp Fiction down the road, so we don't want to get too much into that. Uh, we were talking a little bit about the cast, and just you know, another guy I wanted to mention is Steve Buscemi, uh, who, you know, over here, he's a favorite son because he comes from Long Island. Uh, he was a former New York City firefighter. Uh, I don't think he did it for very, very long, but he was part of the fire, dep- fire department, and I remember him... Uh, following 9-11 at the 9-11 tribute at Madison Square Garden, coming out with with a bunch of firemen, which just was a kind of a cool thing. I vaguely knew of him at this point from Lonesome Dove, which is one of my favorite mm. things of one of my favorite things ever. Uh, we covered that on one of the first few episodes of his shows, in fact. Uh, he, had a, he had a very small part in that. Uh, and I, I was at a uh, confirmation party, and the DJ was Steve Buscemi's brother. So, you know, I, I kind of knew, oh, yeah, this, this guy's brother is an actor. And, you know, like he, he was known a little bit around, you know, in, in the New York area when this came out. But he, he was far from a big star at this time either. But apparently uh, his part was originally going to be played by Tarantino until yeah. he tried out for it. And then they were like, even Tarantino said, he does it better than I do. So, but what he 
reportedly did was he took a couple of the lines from Buscemi and gave them back to himself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the the Madonna speech was supposed to be Mr. Pink's, but I think he still gave that to himself. Yeah, I think that the, is the, the one. Yeah. I mean, his, his part in this movie is fairly small, and Quentin Tarantino, you know, I think by his own admission, is, is not a great actor. Uh, you know, he, so he, he needs to keep himself in, in more cameo-type roles, because, you know, when, when, he, when he has a big part, he usually does not uh, carry the film as well as, <laughs> as he might like. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because they, they talked about how how they even, I don't know, you know, who knows, maybe it's all hyperbole by this point, but, you know, they, they tell the same kind of PR stories, but, you know, they, they Tarantino will always tell the story about, you know, how the script got into Keitel's hands, and that, you know, Keitel was not adverse to doing scenes with him and everything like that, but then they kind of go into the whole thing about how, you know, Buscemi, you know, almost wouldn't have been in this film if not for Harvey Keitel. I mean, that that's another thing that, that they, you know, Buscemi owes Harvey Keitel for because Harvey Keitel financed, like, their trip to New York because I think the thing originally was, this is a low-budget film, we're just going to cast people out of L.A. locally. You know, like, they weren't going to go anywhere. But mm-hmm. then, the you know, Keitel was kind of like, no, you got to, you got to, you know, see some people from New York, like, everybody's talking about this, everybody's really, really keen on it, like, let, let's go to New York, he's like, I don't feel right if you don't do this, like, I'll, 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 you know, I'll put up the money for it, and all that kind of stuff, and they tell the funny stories about, you know, how, uh, you know, he's in first class, and they're in coach, and all this other kind of stuff like that, but I, I was looking for Michael Madsen stuff, too, and, and, like, I noticed, like, I was, like, before Reservoir Dogs, he was in some pretty big, I mean, he wasn't like the main character or anything, but he was in some pretty big budget films. Like he was in he was in the uh, Val Kilmer, The Doors, and he was in mm-hmm. Thelma and Louise. So like, I mean, he was probably up and coming, you know. But but this was probably one of the biggest like sort of you know starring roles, or or at least you know a, as a character actor, you know, one of the biggest featured roles he had up to that point. Yeah, and and he he plays the part so well. Yeah, he, he is so menacing. And yet, quiet and subdued at the same time. It, in its own way, it reminds me a little bit of Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, I see. Because I mean, he's got that. He, he's got that quiet, calm demeanor. You know. You know what I love? It's like I, I, I keep wanting to cross the streams um, with True Romance, but there's a couple things I want to bring up, and you, you sort of triggered it. Is sure. Mr. Blonde reminds like his his actions, you know, like when he first comes in and he sees all the, you know, you know, basically Mr. White's, you know, beating the crap out of Mr. Pink and they got guns on everybody. And he mm-hmm. comes in and he's basically just drinking his soda. Yeah, and he's just finished a meal, basically. And keep in mind, he's just blown away a shit ton of people at this bank. And he's got a cop in the back of his trunk. And he stopped and like, to go he, through a drive through McDonald's. And he stopped to go through a drive through <laughs> He ate the food, and he's finishing the soda. And so what that reminds me of the most is, in True Romance, there's the, the moment where where uh, it's Christian Slater, but he's, he's Clarence. He comes in. And, and he's clocking the white pimp played by Gary Oldman, Drexel. And, and like, they go through this whole monologue, and he's like, he's like, see, he's like, he's like, uh, I'm trying to remember the line, but he's basically like, he's like, you know, maybe you such a bad mother you just sit down and eat all my Chinese, you know? And, and he's like, you ain't even sat down yet, you know? And, and so, like, 
that whole moment is like he's trying to convey like if you were such a badass like you wouldn't just come in here and be all grumpy and stare me down ready to shoot me you if you were a real badass you would sit down and start eating my food and you wouldn't care you wouldn't have the shits because you're a badass like it doesn't matter what's going on and so like that's the kind of vibe that i got from mr blonde in this where it's like it, you know it's a basically he's such a bad motherfucker like he don't got to worry about nothing he's just drinking his you know his, his soda or whatever yeah, and, he well, doesn't care. and it's definitely the perspective that he gives you not only does he not care uh or not only does he not show any care, I, I legitimately think he doesn't care. Like, when, yeah. when, his, yeah, when well, his character ultimately ends, I don't think it bothers him. <laughs> like, he's not one of these guys who says, oh, my God, I'm going to die. He's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's like whatever. Right. He just doesn't care about anything. But the scene, I mean, you know, to, to, just to go to the most famous scene in the movie, uh, that torture scene, he's just, he does it so well. And, he, you know, he gives him the speech, I don't care what you tell me. I'm just going to kill you. I'm just going to torture you because I want to. You know, it's it's like, wow, <laughs> this guy is truly a psychopath. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you know, Kaitel as Mr. White, you know, he, he, he says that. He says the guy's a psychopath. Like, you can't work with a with a psychopath. And, and the, it's interesting because they make the distinction between, you know, I guess... The other characters maybe being sociopaths, like they're, they're you know, they, they, they have their own moral codes, but, you know, to, it's like that sequence where they say, oh, you know, did you tag anybody? And he's like, no, no real people, you know, just cops, no real people, yeah, so you know, and it's like, so, 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 so to them, like, because they're sociopaths, like that, that doesn't, that doesn't really violate any of their code, whereas they, they, they might actually sit there and like have a feel bads moment if they tagged a real person. That's why, that's why they're judging, you know, Mr. Blonde, because they're like, oh, how old was that girl? What was she, 18? Like, you know, so they're, they're getting into it because they, they, they think that's unprofessional, you know, it was unbecoming cubbing of him to to act the way he did and the other thing that's kind of cool about it and again it makes it theatrical is you know of course you you really don't see and you never will see in this film like you know what exactly happened so it's always going to be that that notion of you know kind of going back to the is it jaws thing like there's that there's that sense of imagination you know that you can bring to it and and you filling in the blanks is probably always going to be more interesting and and invigorating than anything that they could have come up with you know i and i guess just to dovetail into something that i i I, uh fell down a rabbit hole with because i was curious about they made this really crappy video game of reservoir dogs i guess and like it actually like like tries to show you what happened and i'm like it's so bad like because it's like (laughs) anything 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 people come up with like you know it's just it's that's gonna be bad it's never gonna live up to like you know whatever your the vision in your head or whatever is or 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 you know what's funny is i don't even know that i want like a vision in my head but i remember people would constantly like debate over things like what happened at the bank who got away at the end did anybody get away at the end like all these kind of things like people trying to i don't know philosophize about or pontificate about you know and it's funny because you're like well you know ultimately this is just an entertaining heist movie but like people I don't know. There, there's some sense of you know importance or weight that people wanted to uh, ascribe to this film. You know, where where you know, like you're talking about Mr. Pink, and like there's. A, I remember. I remember specifically 
we would argue, like people would argue, like what happened, and you'd sit there and play that last bit where he, he, he you know, uh, you know, again, I guess we're getting to the end of the film, but the last end of the the film where you know, uh, you know, Mr. White basically, like you know, shoots. Mr. Orange in the head and it ends the film. But if you listen to the audio, like everybody wants it, like, so what happens to Mr. Pink? Can you hear? There's sirens, there's this, there's that. Like, you know, so it's like people are always trying to figure out, like, what what exactly happened? And, like, you know, what's funny is for me, I, like, look at these scripts I have, you know, and it's like, it's like, I think, it, let me pull it out for sure to see what it says, but, like, I, I think there's actually, like, a asterisk where it says there's a cut, like, line of dialogue or something from the script dealing with like the end sequence so if you wanted to point to that as like canon or whatever yeah so it says here it says uh okay mr white blah 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 blah. okay mr pink is standing motionless finally he grabs the satchel of diamonds and runs out the door then there's an asterisk which says cut from the completed film we hear outside a car start then the sound of a bullhorn yells out police force off camera freeze get out of the car and lie face down on the ground mr pink off camera don't shoot we now hear sirens the sound of more cars driving up men running to the warehouse while all this noise is going on mr white tries to stand but falls down he somehow makes it to where mr orange lies and then you sort of catch up with you know the actual mm. end of the film or whatever. So it's like, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like it's like you could sit here and people could argue and philosophize all day, but then you're like, well, look, it says right well, there. Based, based script, on the script, you know. he lives, yeah, but he he's arrested. Caught. Yeah, yeah. So Okay. But, well, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I am generally not a big fan of, well, you have to decide what happened as the viewer. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I more often than not feel that's a cop-out. Uh, and I and I usually point to the uh, closing scene of The Sopranos as my example, mm. uh, where where it's like, well, you have to decide if he was shot or not, or if he was killed at the end, or if he just you know went on to live happily ever you, after. You know what? And, you know what's weird about that though? Like, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, but man, that's such a crap ending. Like, and uh, the, the Sopranos thing. But I mean, like, the ending of this film is so good. Like, I it's just I don't know. It's like. I guess maybe I just didn't have enough investment in it by that point because I, I really really did like like I think like maybe like the first two seasons of Sopranos but it like kind of went on too long for me and then by the time it ended I felt like you you know really kind of disappointed like it was one of the great disappointing like season finales or series it, finales it, it was one of the great it's, I'm in total agreement with you except for the fact that you lost interest after two seasons I stayed interested yeah. through the whole series. I stayed okay. interested, uh, and but I thought it was one of the great cop-out endings. I, in my opinion, they plan to do a scene where he gets killed at the very end, and that's how the series mm-hmm. ends. Uh, and then I, th- I think they decided that that would not play well with the audience, so they decided to do the cut right there instead. Mm-hmm. That's just my conjecture. I have no factual basis for that opinion. That's just what I kind of think happened. Uh, and and I think if they had, a, I, I I think somehow they needed to come up with a different ending altogether, and and I don't think killing him off at the end was going to be satisfying. So I think you needed to have him be able to kind of survive, and you could have had okay, it goes on, and you don't know that he's going to live happily as a gangster for the rest of his life. Uh, you know that that he you know he's still going to be in mortal danger and could get killed at any given moment. But I think that was kind of more the way to end that series. And moving off that series, moving on to this one, uh, onto this movie, my thought process is it's a very very hard thing to do. 
because I don't like the you decide how it ends. But in this one, I think they give you just enough information and they put you in a position where you don't really feel like you need more. You're not so invested in the character that you have to get more. You just kind of get a kick out of him as a character, but you don't really care <laughs> if he doesn't survive. Right, it's not going right. to bother you. Tony Soprano, you watched him for whatever it was, six seasons, I think it was, or maybe seven seasons. You cared if his character died. I don't think you cared if Mr. Pink died, really. Yeah, and then and then I guess what's interesting is you, you have other people. like I think Madsen wanted to play Mr. Pink because he was pretty convinced Mr. Pink got away. You know, like, and, and and there's a lot of. I remember there were a lot of arguments about that because people would say, "Well, the reason why Mr. Pink gets away is because he's quote unquote a professional." Like, but he's he, a weasel. He, yeah, yeah, he's a weasel. But but the the way the way he adheres to the sociopathic code of these these you know suited criminals, he follows their letter to the law, like, or at least. He, he keeps trying to push to follow that letter to the law, where he's like, when he shows up at the warehouse, he's like, this place is probably compromised. Let's get the hell out of here. You know, like, like the whole time, he's like, you know, and the whole thing is like, why'd you tell him your name? Like, I mm -hmm. mean, it's like, he's a weasel. He sucks. He doesn't follow this. You know, Tarantino's got this thing about how he thinks it's, uh, you know, Asian cultures don't question why Mr. Orange tells him at the end he's a cop. Because they, they, you know, I don't know, it's, there's like different words in Japan, you know, giri or whatever, where it's like honor or duty or, you know, burden or, you know, whatever you want to translate it into that doesn't really quite translate. But the idea is, you know, that, that there, there's, there's this thing between amongst men, you know, and it's like that's that's supposed to be what it is. It's like he's he's going to give him the opportunity to do what he needs to do within that three seconds. and And, and because they had that you know, connection or that bond or whatever, the, you know, bond of brothers or whatever you want to call it. Whereas I think, you know, Mr. Pink, you know, his attitude is kind of like, you know, you didn't tell him anything else that could fucking narrow it down, did you? You know, he goes into the whole routine and everything. And then, you know, I don't know, like those those kind of scenes, he's like, what was I supposed to do? You know, I'm sorry, I can't give out that fucking information. You know, like all that stuff, like, is, is like my, my favorite stuff in the film, because it's like that. I mean, I guess, that you know, this might be giving away my hand and everything. But I mean, like those things to me are like super quotable and everything. And then for uh, this is this is especially for for Dr. Bill and he'll he'll be able to relate to this. But um, uh, my birthday this year, it was the 12th and I, I came down with like a, a kidney stone attack or whatever. Like and, and I, I, I really felt like crap that day and I, I didn't realize it at first. And then eventually I was like, oh, I think I know what this is. Like, this feels terrible. And I'm like, it's probably like a stone. And so I went down to see the doctor and everything. And. Typically, behind the scenes, when we record fan holes, usually we do it on a Saturday night. And so it's like this Friday. Uh, and, and so I go and see the doctor. And, you know, long story short, um, I guess I got some pain meds and, and everything's okay now. But at the time, I felt like terrible. So I sent the clip of Tim Roth, you know, because everybody was like, are you going to be on on Saturday? Like, how, you know, whatever. And so I kind of basically was like, I, I don't think i'm gonna be around on saturday i don't really know but as of right now like this is how i feel and the clip was you know tim roth being like you i'm you know, that was that was my that was my that like that that's basically like like when i have kidney stones like that's it, that's how i feel where i was like i'm 
dying here you know and so like i th- those are those those are those moments where where i kind of i kind of dig the uh the film and everything and 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 those are some of the moments that i i genuinely love because it's like my favorite my favorite parts of the film let me let me ask you now uh while it's on my mind are there, do you have any other favorite quotes that you'd like to to mention right now uh i i think i i think i got them but you know one thing i did want to mention and this is this is so surreal and it it won't make any sense this only makes sense in my head as a a comic nerd or whatever like and i'm trying to like make connections where there's no connections but it's like tarantino uses like a lot of um a lot of the same names in in stories so people try to like they, they try to make try one to, universe out of it yeah they, they try to make, like universes or, or say like you know i don't know because I, I mean i kind of stopped watching tarantino movies after like death proof so like i haven't seen anything like like i haven't seen like inglorious bastards or Django Unchained or anything like that, but like I, I, I saw like some of these videos where they're like, oh look, you know, this person in Django Unchained is clearly the great 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 grandfather of you know so and so or whatever, like things like that. And so like you'll notice things like uh, I think they they bring up like things like uh, Mr. Blonde's parole officer's name is Seymour Scagnetti, but mm-hmm. then like and they mentioned Alabama. Scag- yeah, yeah, Alabama, and so like Jack Scagnetti is is uh, Tom Sizemore in Natural Born Killers, and he's the guy that was going after Mickey and Mallory. So you're like, is Seymour related to Jack? Like they're both cops, you know, like that kind of thing. And and they talk about Alabama, and the, the thing that I was like to me like where I, I I did all these like backflips, which they don't make any sense whatsoever. But I was like, wait a minute, like I'm like Mr. White's real name is is Larry, like, but I'm like. Clarence, like Larry, <laughs> like I'm, I'm trying to like make connections, and I'm like, but but he still has his eye, like, and I'm like, well, did he get a glass eye? Like, what what happened? Like, I'm trying to make it like like Mr. White is like an older version of Christian Slater somehow that that you know. But what's weird is in the script for True Romance, like Clarence dies at the end of True Romance, like in the original script, like he doesn't live, like mm-hmm. they don't go off to like. I don't know, I forget, they go to, like, the beach or Hawaii or Mexico or somewhere and live happily ever after or whatever. So then then after I read the script when I went to Sam French, like, I, I was even more, like, you know, mind-fucked or whatever because I was like, wait, this doesn't make any sense! Like, and I had this whole thing, like, worked out in my head that, like, somehow Mr. White was, like, the older version of, of Clarence or whatever, but he isn't. But I, I anyway, that, that, was, that was something I kind of wanted to get into. And the, the other thing that I loved about all the publicity for this, and, and, and that, that's why I have one of them as my, my Skype avatar, is, like, I think this was, like, one of the first films to really bring about the whole character-specific poster. Like, and that, that was something that I loved, because when I, when I went to, you know, I had my, my Pulp Fiction moment, I guess. It's like, when I went to Europe, like... I would get like these postcards. So it's like, I couldn't really afford to get like all these one sheet movie posters, but what I could afford to get were all these postcards of the posters. So it's Mm. like, I remember at one point I, you know, my college dorm room was like decorated with, you know, postcards of all the reservoir dogs character specific posters. So if you had like, you know, Mr. Orange or Mr. White or, you know, Mr. Blonde or whoever the, you know, the poster was of, you know, and then these character specific ones. And now it's like, I, I feel like, oh, that's just common hat now. It's just commonplace. Like if you, you know, whatever it is, you know, Aquaman, Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever, you're going to have all these like, you know, Aquaman Solo, you know, Mera poster, uh, right. you know, Black Mana poster, uh, you know, uh, Ocean Master poster or whatever, you know, and, and you're going to go down the list. But I, I, I kind of think this was the first time I ever 
felt like that was a, a thing or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, and I got to think that there was before this, but I can't think of anything again off the top of my head. So if I do, I'll let you know down the line, <laughs> but it won't happen during this show, I don't believe. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things this show did, and, and it, it didn't originate it. I mean, it's been, you know, there have been other movies, I think uh, one of which... Uh, it's probably the most notable was probably the big chill about 10 years earlier than this. Uh, but it, it, it really did try and pull together a soundtrack of, you know, older nostalgic songs uh, and, and have that as kind of a hook to the movie. Yeah, even though even though I never saw this in the theater and I watched it later on VHS, I can I can verify and fully, you know, as, uh, I, I can fully own up to the fact that by 1994, I think I was I was totally mainlining like either the Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction soundtracks. Like that's pretty much like you know one of the things that was you know in my CD player on my playlist back in the day in my my Chevy S10 or whatever. Like that's what I was listening to on the way to school or whatever. And like I think I I remember I think because I was so into like the sort of I guess what Tarantino was pulling for his his music, his his sort of soundtracks, I guess, or whatever. Like I, I remember, I had a uh, a video production class, and one of my projects, I ended up doing like a a short film from like the the Sin City short, like the one the the woman in the red dress or whatever. And I remember using like a lot of the songs from either this or the Pulp Fiction soundtrack and everything in it, like to like have background music to it and everything. Right, and and I think that soundtrack was really kind of you know a huge seller, all things considered, and I think it added to the popularity of this movie. I remember like he gets like so like I'm I'm trying to remember it was I think it was like the song in Kill Bill where they they have the um, the one band that comes in in the the like I guess for lack of a better term like the the Cato Gang sequence or whatever yeah yeah yeah. Like, yeah. The, you know, and I, I remember like there was this story. Isn't that the isn't that about, the band that does the song from the beginning of the Teen Titans cartoon? Isn't uh, that the same band? I don't know. I don't know. Um, it might be. Uh, well, I know the Teen Titans one is Ami Yumi, so I don't know if that's the same thing. Or I not. don't know either, I, and I'm I, I may be just like totally off here, but for some reason I think it's the same band. <laughs> I. I, I just remember he, he was, it's like he told this story about how he was in the store and he heard it playing on a CD, but it's like, it wasn't like it was a CD store. Like he was just in some store and he was like, you got to give me that CD. And and they're kind of like, what? Like, you know, and he's like, he's like, you don't understand if, if I, you know, if you write this down for me or whatever, like, it's like, that's the kind of artistic person he is. And I, I, I sort of relate to that sometimes. Cause like every once in a while, like I'll hear a song and I don't know what it is. And it's like, like either on the radio or it's you know I'm at a friend's house or whatever like and and I'm like sitting there going like oh if I don't you know if I don't remember that song or whatever it's like I'm not going to remember if you write it down for me or whatever it's like I need that like right now or whatever otherwise I'm going to forget it and he basically went into this you know thing about how he basically got the CD and if it wasn't for that that band wouldn't have been in kill bill so it's like i i get that his soundtracks like you you can tell he it's like a labor of love and they're they're carefully 
strategically picked for mm-hmm. very very specific reasons and and it's 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 a very calculated soundtrack and that was something that i always appreciated because it's like it's not like they were just you know i don't know trying to like sell you the latest pop song and like slap it on a record label or whatever you no, know that's, no, not at all that that's the kind of thing that like a traditional like hollywood type film would have where it's like oh well you know we need you know I don't know wh- wh- whoever was on. You know, it's like we we need Seal in in uh, in Batman or whatever. Or you know, like, like, yeah, 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 or, or whatever it was, right? Like y- you need those things. You know, we need the uh, I don't know what is it, Maisie Williams in Spider Man uh. or something like that. You know, like like the, like those kind of things where you're just like, oh well, that 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 wasn't. I mean, it's calculated, but in a different way, right? Like and, Very and so like. You know, but but this, it's like you could tell like th- that there's a lot of love behind the picks, and and I think that's probably why like something like say like the the and 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 I think it shares music obviously, but why the soundtrack to like say like Guardians of the Galaxy like is the same, right? Because you you've got that that kind of playlist of of something where you're like oh. He loves these songs, right. like he he truly does. And then and then he puts his love of those songs in in the film or whatever. So, yeah, I definitely think you know as far as soundtracks go, you know, Guardians is a uh, distant relative of, of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, and you know, yeah, it, it, yeah. it's it's a more mainstream version of the same idea, basically. So, ultimately, and I'm going to bring you to the ultimate question because I get the feeling. I could just kind of let you go on and on, and we could talk about this one for a couple yeah, more hours. Yeah, yeah, but I'm going to ask you the ultimate question anyway. Uh, Derek, is it Jaws? I, I think it is Jaws, but if this is Jaws, then I'm like, does that make Pulp Fiction like E.T.? Like what? I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around everything. But yeah. Well, first, I, I, first of all, I think Jaws is superior to E.T., but that's besides. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, you then, know. So, then, so then they're both. Yeah, okay. So then they're both. They Jaws. can both be Jaws. They can both be uh, Jaws. Um, I, yeah, I think they're Jaws. I mean, I mean, uh, or I think, I think Reservoir Dogs is Jaws. Like, for, for and I think by your, your standards, too. Like, because, I mean, that, that, that's something that, that, like, I, I find interesting, too. Because, like, I feel like there are some films that are really, really great. But they don't, they don't really meet the Jaws standards. Like, mm-hmm. like, I, I, you know, there are things, like, I try to wrap my head around. Like, I think, like, say, like. I don't know. Logan is a great film, or you you could say unquestionably like Schindler's List is a great film. But like, do I want to watch like Logan and Schindler's List again and again and again? Do I want to like quote them or whatever? It's like no, they're kind of like grueling, gut wrenching experiences, and I'm like kind of glad I saw them, and I think they're great. But like, do I want to like constantly revisit them? It's like the answer to that is probably like no. Yeah, so, like, I totally I'd probably, agree with you. I, I, I'd probably like I, I don't know if I'd piss off people or not, but like to me, like on your Jaws level, I probably wouldn't say those are Jaws's. But like for this, like it's like it's funny. It's like coming home to an old friend. You know, you said, oh, you know, you want to do this is a Jaws on Reservoir Dogs. I was like, yeah, sure. And then and then watching it, you know, I was like, oh, I, I watched it again and I was like, oh, that was great you know and and i just i really liked you know watching it again and and then you know to me it it brings back memories where i've seen this movie probably hundreds of times you know and it's like i i I don't know if that's like sad or what but it's like i i dig the movie a lot and so in terms of you know things quotability we we sort of covered that and and in terms of just rewatchability it's like yeah i have no problem like you know, sitting through this movie and and it, it to me it's still as entertaining and enjoyable. I mean, I guess there's there's the aspect to it where you know 
I guess after the first time you see it, right, there, there are certain things you may lose, like some of the, you know, knowing some of the twists in the story and everything. But other than that, I mean, it, it still doesn't make it any less entertaining to sort of, you know, go through the motions with it. And, and I think, you know, obviously the cast is great. The, uh, like you said, the soundtrack is outstanding. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, great, I think, first-time things that happen in terms of direction and the fact that it's like a... It, it's almost like a stage play on film, in a way. And so, like, there's a lot of different things about it that I appreciate that I think certainly make it, you know, as far as, as I'm concerned, that make it Jaws. So Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with most of what you're saying. And uh, I, I definitely think in my personal opinion rewatchability is a factor that has to be considered in determining whether something is jaws or not in my opinion um there probably are a select few movies that are so intense and difficult to watch but are so great or so terrifically put together that i'd rank them as jaws anyway and i'm not going to even bother speculating as to which ones they are uh, i think you did give two examples of two movies that i think are terrific but probably fall shy of being jaws just because of the lack of rewatchability uh this one in particular i think you got to put a little bit of an asterisk on it because if you are at all squeamish to violence I think this is a movie that you probably would not get any pleasure out of at all. Uh, despite the fact that they, you know, other than showing liquid blood, you know, showing red liquid, you don't really see a lot of the gore. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it's more implied, even, you know, the, like, again, the, the most uh, violent well, it, scene when, he, when, when Michael Madsen cuts off the, the, undercover, the cop's ear. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you're still not. You know, you're not really seeing very much when it's going on, but you know what's go, you know what's happening. So your imagination is seeing it. Well, I mean, it, it certainly hit enough people pretty hard. I mean, they they have all these stories about how you know Wes Craven walked out on that scene, and like there are different different people walked out on that scene, and you know some people were like, oh, well, you take it as a compliment because it, it was that visceral and real to them that they they couldn't stomach what they were seeing on screen so yeah even though you never actually saw the the knife touching his ear yeah so you know there's a certain aspect of it which to me you got to credit quentin tarantino's directing that he can make you in your mind's eye see this violence without ever actually showing you it up close yeah i think there's something to be said for that yeah you you feel it i mean there's there's you don't have to see it to to get a to get a visceral reaction out of somebody, and 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 there, there's a lot of moments in this that do obtain that uh, reaction out of you, you know, and 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 I guess your 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 caveat is is warranted, you know, like if you're not, you know, if if you you know, if if Jaws to you does not include tons of profanity and tons of violence and 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 things that evoke that kind of visceral response because of that violence, then then yeah, then then that may not be a a film for you, you know? Yeah, and if you have that negative reaction, this is probably a, a Jaws 3 or a Jaws 4 just because it's got a ton of it. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's got a terrific script. It's directed exceptionally well for a guy who didn't really have experience when he made it, especially some of the non-linear stuff. It really just falls very well. Um the soundtrack is top notch. It's got a great amount of rewatchability. If you know, if again, if it fits your sensibilities, uh, I am torn to some extent on this because 
I want to give it a Jaws, but I also want to give it a Jaws 2 because it's just, you know, it, it's there, but it's not perfect. Uh, so I'm just, I'm going to give it, I'm kind of going to give it a Jaws 2 plus. <laughs> it's on, on, on that cusp. It's almost at a Jaws, but it's not quite there. Jaws 1.5. That's that's if I, when I get Dr. Bill on, he'll give a rating like that. Nice. But it, it's 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 right on the cusp of Jaws. No, I I, I sort of get that because it's like you, you sort of have to wrestle with things because you're like, well, wait, like what else is you know like like it, it, that that's what I was wondering too because because I was thinking to me I was like, well, if Pulp Fiction's Jaws is Reservoir Dogs still Jaws like or is it <laughs> is it Jaws 1.5? You know, like, yeah, like yeah, I don't yeah. I don't know. I think if it was somebody else's show, I'd get in trouble for trying to, you know, subvert the uh, rating system that way. But since it's my own show, <laughs> I'm allowed. To, I'm allowed to do what I want. Like it's me. Get used to it, and so, and I'm coming back too. So get yeah, used to you'll it. you'll be back. And uh, before you leave, though, why don't you tell everybody? You know, you've mentioned your show, but why don't you give them tell them where they can find it? Oh yeah, sure. If 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 you guys want to listen to uh, more podcasts, and you know, some are, are related to film and some are not, but um, if you want to check out more podcasts that I'm on, uh, they're over on the fanholspodcast.blogspot.com. And uh, if you like uh, comic books and film adaptations of comics, uh, check out my YouTube channel. It's um, History of Comics on Film, and you can see the videos from there on H-O-C-O-F. It's short for History of Comics on Film. Blogspot.com. There you go. Thanks for coming on, Derek. I appreciate this. And just for, to, to give you a little extra pat on the back, uh, Derek and I were supposed to record this last week, and then I got caught up in some other issues that just took my night away, and Derek stayed on hold waiting to record, uh, which I really appreciate, but I was never able to get back to him. And then, you know, willingly came forward again tonight without any, uh, and without, a, without a second thought, and I just appreciate your uh, making yourself available at my schedule. Yeah, yeah, no problem. No, this is this is fun. I mean, that's that's what it's about, right? And and, I, and you, like you said, I I could probably talk about this for for days. So yeah, <laughs> we're we're all good. All right, thanks again, and thank you everybody for listening in, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. I'll take care of the check. You guys can get the tip. Should be about a buck a piece. And you, when I come back, I want my book. Sorry, it's my book now. Hey, I changed my mind. Shoot this piece of shit, will you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody cough up some green for the little lady. Come on, throw in a buck. Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it. You don't believe in tipping? Do you know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, she can quit. I don't even know a fucking Jew would have the ball to say that. Uh, let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. Uh, it's for the birds. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. I mean, she wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick. <laughs> I'd go over 12% for that. Hey, look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want to fill six times. Six times? Well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. 
Excuse me, Mr. Pink, but the last fucking thing you need is another cup of coffee. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I mean, these ladies aren't starving to death. They make minimum wage. And I used to work minimum wage, and when I did, I wasn't lucky enough to have a job the society deemed tip-worthy. You don't care they'd count on your tips to live? You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So I was working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Well, why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. Fuck all that. Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm very sorry the government taxes their tips. That's fucked up. That ain't my fault. I mean, it would appear that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. I mean, if you show me a piece of paper that says the government shouldn't do that, I'll sign it. Put it to a vote, I'll vote for it. But what I won't do is play ball. And this non-college bullshit you're giving me, I got two words for that. Learn to fucking type. Because if you're expecting me to help out with the rent, you're in for a big fucking surprise. Just convince me. Give me my dollar back. Hey! Leave the dollars there. All right, ramblers, let's get rambling. Wait a minute. Who didn't throw in? Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink? Why not? You don't tip. You don't tip? What do you mean you don't tip? You don't believe in it. Shut up. What do you mean you don't believe in it? Come on, you. Cough up a bucket, cheap bastard. I paid for your goddamn breakfast. All right, since you pay for the breakfast, I'll put in. But normally, I would never do this. Mind what you normally would do. Just cough in your goddamn butt like everybody else. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>